Thanks, Chad, for the prayer, the review of Romans. Now we're caught up to where we need to be. I just wanted to mention a couple things before we started. Uh, if you could stick around. First of all, I would just encourage you to come tonight. Come tonight and hear more about what Amy's going to be doing. Be inspired. I'm inspired by Amy and her life, and I've known her, I think, since about that 19 age, and I've seen her through the years, some struggles, but always getting back up and always moving forward, and that inspires me. And so uh, come tonight and be inspired. And if you can stay after service just a little bit, and Dina Reese is going to direct us. We're going to set this place up for tonight because we have uh, bodies here. So if you're able to stick around right after service, we'll set this up. It'll take 10, 15 minutes, Dina, probably. Thank you. All right. So this morning... uh, We're in Romans chapter 8. We're going to be uh, looking at verses 14 through 17. Now, this is Memorial Day, but part of me wishes uh, this passage could wait until Father's Day. Because in it, we find just this great insight into what it means that God is our Father. Knowing, understanding, and believing the truth that you are a child of God is at the heart of living the Christian life. It's at the heart of experiencing life in the Spirit. That's that's life we've been talking about since we started Romans chapter 8. And so we're going to take two weeks to look at these verses. This week we'll establish a sort of a foundation of seeing the nature, what it means to be a child of God. And then next week we'll build on that foundation and we'll look at the, the privileges, what we receive, what God blesses us with because we are children of God. Now today... I want to begin with a personal story that I've shared before. Some of you have probably heard this. I share it often because uh, besides my conversion experience, it's probably the most important single uh, event in my life. And I share it today because it illustrates some of what it means to be a child of God. This happened about 20 years ago, not too long after my family arrived in Thailand as missionaries. Now, I'd gone to seminary, I'd studied the scripture, I knew and I'd shared the gospel on a number of occasions, so, so I knew in my head that I was a child of God. But that knowledge had a little impact on my heart and, and in my life. I, I was very insecure about my relationship with God. When I sinned, I, I felt shame and fear. It was often overcome with uh, what I would call debilitating guilt. It would often take me a long time to go to God in repentance and to seek forgiveness. I had to go down and down and down until I would uh, come back up because I viewed God more like a, a judge than a father. I knew the truth of God's love for me. However, I often lived as, it, as if I was, God was just looking for an opportunity to condemn me. So for many years, my my relationship with with God was not something I cultivated or really even enjoyed. But when when, when my daughter, Beth, was eight years old, something happened to to change all that. She wasn't a, a perfect child, but she really hadn't caused us much trouble in those first eight years. Unlike her brother, no, just kidding. But in Thailand, she was in a new situation, and and, and she had just got there, and like all of us, she wanted to have friends. However, the way she went about getting friends was a problem. 
She began stealing from us, her parents, and from others. She would then give these things she stole to to kids in the hopes that they would be her friends. Sort of like a, a Robin Hood with selfish motivations. Now, when I found out about this, uh, this stealing, my first reaction was to condemn her, to kick her out of the family, and to disown her as my child. (laughs) Funny, huh? Of course, of course not. As parents, we know that wasn't my reaction, unless I'm some kind of evil. Well, anyway, My my reaction was sadness and confusion. But in my sadness, uh, my sadness came from a a place of love and compassion for my child. The first question I asked wasn't, how can I punish her for stealing? In fact, I, I wasn't even thinking about punishment. The first question I asked was, what can I do to help my child in this difficulty she's facing? And it was at some point in this process that my eyes were open. It was like blinders came off uh, to see what the Bible teaches us about being children of God. I realized that if, if I, an imperfect father, wanted more than anything to help my daughter, to help her in her struggle and in her sin, then God, the perfect father, certainly wanted to help me in my struggles. Oh, there might be discipline, and for Beth there was discipline, but the discipline would be for my good. I realized not only in my head, but in my heart, that even when, my, when I sinned, at my worst moments, my father continued to love me. He continued to desire what was best for me. And since that day, my entire perspective, really, my attitude has changed. I no longer view God as a, as a judge seeking to condemn me. I view him as the the loving Heavenly Father he is who desires my good. My insecurity has vanished for the most part. I still have my issues. But it's really been replaced by, by true security in my relationship with God. So when I sin, I know that I'm still a child of God, that God still loves me, and he still wants what's best for me. And instead of avoiding God because of my shame, because of fear, I quickly go to him in repentance, asking and receiving forgiveness and receiving strength to overcome my sin. And this means I not only have a much more intimate relationship with God, but by the Spirit, I've been able to achieve victory over the sin in my life. Not that I'm sinless, but I sin less. Knowing I have a loving Heavenly Father has been the most effective thing in my life for experiencing relationship with God and overcoming the sin in my life. Or put another way, knowing that I am a child of God has enabled me to experience life in the Spirit. Now for me, because I'm a knucklehead, it took a very difficult situation to understand, but, but that doesn't have to be the case for you. Because as we come to God's Word today... It's my prayer that the Spirit of God will work in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives, that we all, in a new way, that we'll come to understand and and, and then begin living based on the reality that we are children of a loving Heavenly Father. So if you'll turn with me to Romans 8, and for context, we're going to back up and begin in verse 12. Paul writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is what we looked at last week. 
We Christians are debtors. We're under obligation to God for all he's done for us. And we fulfill our obligation to God, not by by living according to the flesh, but by living according to the Spirit. By the power of the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. As we said last week, by the power of the Spirit, we kill our sin. And then Paul continues. This is what we're looking at today. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Yes, we're under obligation to God, but not as slaves. We're under obligation as children of God. We're under obligation to the one who not only saves us and sanctifies us, but to the one who adopts us into his family, to the one who loves us in the most profound way possible as a father, as a parent loves a child. So let's examine what, what these verses reveal about being children of God. And the first thing Paul makes clear is that God's children are led by the Spirit. In fact, that's how Paul defines what it means to be a son, a child of God. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. If you're led by the Spirit, you're a son of God. If you're a son of God, you're led by the Spirit. So what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Well, first it means that the Spirit of God is is with you, right? You can't be led by someone. You can't be led by something if they're not present, I use uh, Google Maps on my phone to lead me to places all the time now. I don't know how I got to places uh, 20 years ago. I, I, I have no memory of how I did that. But if I don't have my phone with me, then Google Maps can't lead me, right? And Paul, speaking to those who are in Christ, has already said in verses 9 and verses 11 that the Spirit of God dwells in you. We talked about that. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God is not only with you, He sets up residence in you. He, he, that word uh, uh, means to pitch a tent even. He pitches His tent in you. As Paul says to the church in Corinth, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? God gives His children His Spirit uh, to lead us. Now, now some think that being led by the Spirit has to do with the Spirit helping us make decisions, okay? The Spirit guides us to choose the right spouse, the right job, the right mission field, the right place to live, the right team to cheer for, the right socks to wear. I don't know. I don't know where it ends. And I believe, as Jesus says in John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. So there is some guidance involved with the Spirit. But here in verse 14, I think Paul is referring to a a more specific type of leadership that the Spirit provides. I think this is the ultimate type of leadership and guidance that the Spirit provides in our lives. I say that because of the extremely important connection between Romans 8, 14 and 13. Not that they're just side by side, which is important in and of itself. We can't understand verse 14 what it means to be led by the Spirit without the context of verse 13. Verse 14 begins with the Greek word gar, for, we translate it, or because. This ties what Paul writes in 14 
with what he's already written in 13. In verse 13, he's explaining how you experience life in the Spirit. And he says, you do this. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We will, ex- we will live, we will experience life in the Spirit by putting to death the deeds of the body. As we talked about last week, when we, by the power of the Spirit, kill our sin, we experience life. Both eternal life and the abundant life that God intends for us. And the thing I want us to notice is that in verse 13, Paul is saying that it's by the Spirit that you can really experience victory in your life. Victory over sin. Then he explains how this happens in our lives. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This explains how how we have the power to kill our sin. It's because we're sons of God who are led by the Spirit of God. So in this context, being led by the Spirit directly relates to verse 13 when he says, to put to death the deeds of the body. Because we are sons of God, the Spirit of God leads us in the killing of our sin. And he does this by transforming our hearts by empowering us uh, to set our minds, our hearts, our, our thoughts on the things of the Spirit. The Spirit leads us to hate the things the Spirit hates, the things of the world, the flesh. And the Spirit leads us to love the things He loves, the things of the Spirit. The, the Spirit leads us to love the ways of God, the will of God, the Word of God. Now what does this look like? What does this Spirit leadership look like practically in our lives? I hope Most of us have experienced it. If we're children of God, if we're being led by the Spirit, if we're filling our hearts and our minds with the things of the Spirit found in the Word of God, then the things of this world, the things of the flesh, the things of the devil, will not hold the same attraction for us. The things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace, as the hymn goes. Has this been your experience? Have have you experienced this? Are there times when you're, uh, let's say, watching TV, listening to music, reading a book, surfing the web, or any number of things, and you recognize that what you're seeing, uh, what you're hearing, how it's making you feel is not what God has for you. That these things are leading you, in fact, in the opposite direction of what God wants for your life. You begin to see the the sins of the flesh that are so glorified in our culture for their destructive things that they are. And something inside you stirs, a, a conviction, let's call it. Something inside you says this, giving my attention, filling my mind with these sinful things is not why God created me. It's not why God saved me. It's not why God sanctifies me. Something inside you uh, says, turn away, run away. Stop filling your minds with the sinful things of this world. Maybe maybe at the right time, a a verse, a a scripture comes to your mind. Something like Romans 12, 1 and 2. "I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. These things come to you from the Spirit of God, and instead of continuing to allow your heart and mind to be filled with sin, you turn to Christ, you run to Christ. 
You fill your mind with the things of Christ through prayer, through the, the study of His Word. Have you had that kind of experience? That's the leading of the Spirit. God provides. That's the leading that we get because we have a loving Heavenly Father. What about after, you, after you've sinned, okay? We talk about sort of facing temptations and the Spirit leads us away. What about after you've sinned? You, you didn't listen the first time. Maybe you've even sinned in a big way. Maybe you've given in to some recurring sin. Something you struggle with for, for many years and you're sitting in it. You're feeling the guilt and the shame and the pain. The pain caused by disobedience of your Heavenly Father. And your flesh and its ally, the devil, are crying out with accusations. God, God could never love you. God could never forgive you. You're a worthless piece of bleep. And then you notice a different voice. A voice in your head, a voice in your heart, a voice that's reminding you of who you are in Christ. That you're a child of God. And your Father loves you. The voice is always familiar with the Word of God. And even in your sin and guilt, it starts quoting promises to you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And instead of continuing to to wallow in your sin, you go to God. You confess your sin. You receive forgiveness and cleansing. You reestablish relationship with God and you're empowered to fight against sin in the future. Have you had that kind of experience? Again, that's the Spirit of God leading you. The Spirit of God is in the business of leading us away from our sin to the presence of God. That's what He does. That's the kind of experience that happens to children of God. Because first, God's children are led by the Spirit of God. Why? Because second, second point, God's children are adopted as sons. Again, verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And then in verse 15, Paul writes, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That word for, again, verse 14 started with it, verse 15 points again to why we are sons of God. Because you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. That phrase, adoption as sons, is one compound Greek word, huiothesia. Huios, meaning son, and thesia, meaning to place or to put. It literally means to, to place or to put someone as your son, to, to sonize, really, to, to make or adopt one as your son. By the power of the Spirit, you've been adopted as a son of God. Now, some English translations, uh, maybe you have one, the NIV, the NLT, use the phrase children of God instead of sons of God, even when the word clearly means son. And I think this is misfortunate. Misfortunate? That's, That's a new word. Unfortunate. In verses 14 through 17, Paul calls Christians both sons, huios, of God, which refers specifically to male offspring, and children, Greek word technon, of God, which refers to either male or female offspring. And this is not an accident. I believe Paul is using two different words for a reason. Why? 
Because in Rome, being a son included power and privileges that a daughter did not receive. And Paul wants us to see something here. By calling Christians, male and female, sons, he applies this power and privilege to all. All Christians, regardless of gender, are now sons of God. Now that might sound weird to us. And it certainly did in Paul's day. Commenting on this, uh, Pastor Tim Keller writes, it was a subversive thing for Paul to take a masculine-only institution and show that in Christ, the institution of empowering through adoption is used on females as well as males without distinction. Christian women should not resent being called sons any more than Christian men should resent being called the bride of Christ. Christians are sons. And Christians are brides. And each picture tells us something important about our relationship with Christ. As the bride of Christ, we are eternally loved and protected by Christ. And as sons of God, we are entitled to the privileges and power of of sonship in Christ Jesus. We receive what Christ receives. That's what we see in the first part of verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ... Now, Paul uses the word children here, so, so everyone is clear that, that, that what would normally just apply to males applies to all. Typically, throughout history, when, when Paul was writing, no, he wasn't writing throughout history, typically when Paul was writing uh, during that time and, and, and much of history, only the firstborn son was the heir. There may have been many children and they may have been loved, but, but the heir got the largest share of the wealth and, and carried on the family name. Now in my family, for example, I am the firstborn male. And in my wife's family, there, is, there are no male children and she's the firstborn female. And so I advocate that our fa- families honor this ancient practice and, and, and pass on all their wealth to the, to the firstborn. I think it's a good idea. I've shared that with my parents, with my wife's parents, but it seems to fall on deaf ears. We ha- we're much more about fairness these days, right? Maybe because I, I, I've not been able to present my case very well. The reason families gave the, the largest share of the wealth to one child, the firstborn son, was because this was the way many great families kept their influence intact and didn't have their wealth divided and and separated. So I would appeal to my parents that if they want to keep the Wool's family name great, they need to pass all their vast fortune to me. (laughs) That's a joke. Anyway, the point is, Paul calls all Christians heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. We all, all believers will receive a great inheritance from God. And and we'll talk more about what that inheritance entails uh, next week. But notice, we all receive an inheritance like Christ receives. Now, Christ is the only natural firstborn son of God. We, however, become sons of God through adoption. Adoption was, was common in Roman society. And Paul, as a Roman citizen, would have, would have been familiar with it. It was more common in, in Rome than in, in the Jewish culture. Adoption usually occurred when a wealthy adult had no heir for his estate. He would then adopt a male as an heir. It, it could be a child, a, a youth, or an adult. They would immediately be given all the privileges of sonship. And the fact that Paul uses this image of adoption tells us two important things about being children of God. First, 
Uh, No one, save Jesus, is born in relationship with God. The fact that we receive our sonship proves that there was a time when we were not sons of God, when we were... uh, When we had the spirit of slavery and of fear, we were not children of God. This means that that this father-child relationship with God is not automatic. Second, the image of adoption tells us that our relationship with God is based completely on an act of the Father. Adoption is a legal act on the part of the Father. It's very costly only for Him. There is nothing the Son does to earn His status. It's simply received. Now, some would say that all human beings are God's children because God created them all. But the Bible reserves this term, this children of God, and the the fullness of all that means only for those who've been adopted by God, who've received the spirit of adoption, which, which comes to those who put their faith who received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Speaking of Jesus, the Apostle John writes in chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive Him, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you, you not based on who you are, not based on anything you've done, but based on the Father's will, you're adopted into God's family. You become a son of God with all the power and privileges that entails. And you receive uh, and are led by the Spirit of God uh, to kill the sin in your life, to, to, to be in relationship with God. So to be a child of God means you're led by the Spirit and you're adopted as a son of God. And finally, we learn that God's children are not slaves. That's our final point this morning. Now, in one sense, if you've been with us in Romans, we've already talked about uh, that we are slaves to God. We're not slaves to sin, but we're slaves to God. God is our rightful master, and yes, we are to obey him. But in another sense, we are not, we're not to obey him like slaves out of fear. That's what Paul writes in the beginning of verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons. Paul's making a crucial point about the two ways we can approach living as a Christian. As a slave, don't do that, or as a son. It's possible, and I've done this, Having trusted in Christ to make us righteous, uh, to have the spirit of, that, that, that we will then return and, and have that spirit of slavery again. That is, to return to this attitude of, of performance-based acceptability, acting as if God's blessing, uh, your inheritance, is given to you based on what you do, on what your works are. We see this in the, in the parable of the prodigal son found in Luke chapter 15. The younger son rejects his family and goes off to squander all his inheritance in, in, in uh, debauchery and sinful living. Then, while dreaming about eating pig food, he comes to his senses. He realizes his sin and he decides to return home. But he has no expectation that he is wor- worthy to be called uh, the father's son anymore. And all he hopes is that he can be retained as a, as a hired servant. 
Now, it's quite natural for for people who approach God, including those who profess to be Christians, to basically believe the same thing. We say, "Uh, okay, I'm certainly not worthy to be a child of God. All I can hope for is, is to struggle along as His slave, as His employee. If I perform well, God will pay me wages. He'll answer my prayers. He'll give me favor. He'll protect me. And when I die, He'll save me. But if I perform poorly, He may kick me out. He may fire me. He may disown me. But as a child of God, we never have to be afraid of being fired. Even human parents have a saying. That's why when I said I disowned her, you guys go, oh, what, what's he saying there? Because we, we say things like, well, she's still my daughter, no matter what she does. Or, or even after he's done something terrible, he's still my son. The relationship is based on an unconditional love, not on performance standards. We did not receive the spirit of slavery. Instead, we received the spirit of adoption. This is the truth of who you are in Christ. This is the truth of who you are as a child of God. But this is not always how we live. Even though we we have uh, the right and the ability to approach God as our Father that we are His sons, His children, we instead often live as slaves. We can find ourselves, like I did for those many years, living in a spirit of fear, basing our relationship with God on our performance. But knowing and believing and living based on the fact that we've received the spirit of adoption is meant to crush this spirit of fear, this slavery. The Spirit of God brings into our hearts this deepest uh, security possible. A sense that we can approach God as His beloved children. It's by Him, the Spirit, that we can cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa. More on the, the privilege of crying out, Abba, Father, next week. But let me ask you this in conclusion. Are you living as a slave? Christian, I'm speaking to Believers here, to those that would say, I've trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I I know I can't save myself. I'm trusting in Christ. But are you living as a slave to God or are you living as a son of God? Are you living based on a spirit of slavery or a spirit of sonship? What's the difference? Will a slave obey? I mean, think about this in your own mind. Think about obedience. A slave obeys under compulsion because they must. A son obeys out of love, out of love for and joy in his father. A slave works under the fear of punishment. A son works under the knowledge of loving discipline. A slave is insecure. If I, if I slip up, my master will beat me. A, a son is secure. If I slip up, my father will forgive me. A slave concentrates on external behavior and compliance with with certain rules. A son concentrates on relationship and attitudes. A slave has to work but is given no honor. A son is honored and invited to join in the work. That's the difference. And I want everyone here to understand, to know that if you are in Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then, then you have received the spirit of adoption As sons, you've been added to the family of God. God loves you like a child because you are, in fact, His child. He's adopted you. His choice. And that you today can live as a child of God. 
So, so the foundation has been laid. God's children are not slaves. They are spirit-led sons. And, and next week we'll build on that foundation. We'll see the amazing privileges we have as, as children of God. The question for you today is, will you live like a son? Like a child of God, knowing and experiencing His loving forgiveness and, and power in this life? Or will you live like a slave, knowing and experiencing only fear and shame? Never truly secure in your, your relationship with God. As I found in my life, the difference is a matter of understanding, uh, believing, and living based on the truth that we've seen today in God's Word. That, that in Christ, because of Christ, God is your loving Heavenly Father and you are His child. Would you join me in prayer that, that we, could, we could live based on this truth. We could, we could take it to heart. That so much of what, it, what, it, what we have to do as Christians as we, as we walk through the Word of God is see these truths, believe these truths, take these truths to heart, and live based on them. We need to live based on the truth that you are a child of God. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for, for your adoption, that you've adopted us, that we are your heirs in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that, 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 that we would be led by your Spirit. Lord, that you would uh, convict us of our sin, that you would give us, empower us to overcome our sin, and you would take us out of our sin and into relationship with you. Lord, that we could live as your children, that we could live under your forgiveness and your love. In Christ's name, amen. Stand with us.